Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. When Katie Olawatoyan first tried going to 12-step meetings on Staten Island, where she'd grown up, she hoped to find a community there. Instead, she felt out of place. There was this rule where you couldn't speak about outside issues. Basically, outside issues, generally, you couldn't talk about race. How many Black folks were in those meetings, besides you? None. As a young Black woman who'd grown up on Staten Island's North Shore, one meeting in particular stuck out to her. I remember one of the meetings that I went to, there was a speaker, and the speaker basically began talking about how her life was while she was in addiction. She was, she was miserable. She hated it. She was living in blah, blah, blah neighborhood. And I looked at her like, girl, what's wrong with that neighborhood? I was raised in that neighborhood. The borough that I come from is very North Shore, South Shore, North Shore, a mixed diverse of immigrants, Black folks. And then the South Shore is just predominantly white. I was really annoyed and offended that she said that because there's nothing wrong with that neighborhood. Katie was navigating her early career as a lawyer in New York City and her own alcoholism while struggling to find a recovery path that was right for her. In the process, Katie learned that recovery doesn't have to look a certain way. She was able to create her own recovery community, one she wished she could have had in the first place. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Growing up in New York, Katie was always a high achiever. Very creative, fiery. A go-getter. Yeah, pretty much. I was very adventurous, very outgoing, very creative and productive. However, um, growing up, I don't think I really understood what rest meant. I didn't really understand building self-worth and self-esteem outside of the things that you're accomplishing. Katie was a star student, but she also pushed back against authority. I was very rebellious. I always went against authority, even in school. I will say that. Like, my principals never understood how I got, like, I was such a good student, but I was very defiant. Oh, gosh, I can relate to that so much. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. You you excel in all these areas that are really impressive. But then there's this whole other side of you. I find that in a lot of people who struggle with alcohol or drugs and, and things like that. Yes, I think that, like, growing up, we're constantly told what to do, what to say, how to behave. I always felt like I was being told to be the opposite of who I was um, genuinely, right? Who I was authentically. What was school and, and home life for you back then? Because I know you had a unique upbringing in that you went to Catholic school, right? But you grew up in a Muslim family. My parents are from Nigeria, immigrants, and generally Islam is a huge religion following um, in Nigeria. So, yes, I was born into the Islamic faith. However, there was this assumption that private schools are better in regards to education than public schools. 
So yes, my parents um, enrolled us into like an Irish Catholic school. And basically, I would go to school there. However, after school and on Sundays, I would go to the mosque. And Monday through Friday, I would study Arabic, reading the Quran, and on Sunday, Sunday schools. Katie was also experiencing cultural differences with her parents. Internally, like in the home, I will say it was tumultuous. <laughs> and I think it has a lot to do with like where my family, my parents were raised. When you think about it, my parents, for the most part, are as old as the, in, the independence of the country they were born in. So it just has a lot to do with how they were raised, what they thought was acceptable. Because your family was Muslim, I would imagine conservative around alcohol, right? Did they, No one drank, right? No, not, not at all. So first time you drank, was it your first night of college? Yes, yeah. Wow, okay. My first night of college, I always tell the story of like my my dad and my brother dropping me off at the dorm, and then I get a knock when they leave, and it's this boy. He's a part of the fraternity. He's like, "Hey, do you want to hang out tonight?" And I'm like, "Okay, sure." We we hung out, and at that moment, like alcohol was just so magical um, for me. It was just the the best thing at that time. It just felt different. I felt like I was able to escape felt like I was able just to, to disappear. From that point on, I feel like I've always used alcohol in the in the quote unquote wrong way. Like I never used it socially. Like once I realized the properties of what it was able to do for me, that was the objective, to reach that state every time. Gosh, that, isn't that true? I'm not trying to glorify uh, alcohol. I just want to iterate like the there's stages, right? In the beginning, it's good. It's, it's good until it's no longer good. And that's the problem. You have to be truthful. And that's, that's how we talk about these things, right? The truth is, is that for a while, alcohol or drugs, they felt great. They felt tremendous. They felt really good. Yes. Especially like growing up, always, you know, doing well in school, doing well in sports, winning science competitions, but constantly feeling like I wasn't good enough. Alcohol just made me forget about all like the quote unquote negative aspects that I thought I, I possessed at that time. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So you started drinking in college, but you know, college, everyone's drinking, right? And did you think you had a problem at the time? Absolutely not. Everyone was <laughs> drunk <laughs> half of the time. I had a, a huge course load and I wanted to graduate on time, if not earlier. I always took about like 17 credits per semester. I had a job on campus. I was a sorority girl. I, I was able to do things, right? And um, so Monday through Thursday, I was working hard, working hard, working hard. But Friday to like Sunday, that's when like my drinking would just take off. And I felt like this is what everyone did. And I felt like I deserved it. <laughs> like it was okay, a reward. After college, Katie went to law school. It was a lot like her undergrad years, but everything was kicked up a notch. She drank a lot on the weekends. It was still very problematic. Like No one should be drinking that amount. But as long as you're able to continue going to school, you're getting good grades, you're volunteering in class, you know, you're answering questions, right? No one really cares <laughs> until, until, until it presents itself to be um, where you're not being as productive as you were. Then that's when it generally becomes a problem or issue that needs to be solved. You had an experience during Ramadan that you didn't understand until later. What was that? It was my first summer law school internship. 
typically during law school, you're supposed to be working at different firms or wherever you picture yourself working when you graduate. The goal is to build a relationship with that firm. And then when you graduate, you'll be hired. One of the offers I received was at a firm in New York. You know, it was great. They're trying to impress me. They want me to, to come to apply to this firm and work here after I graduate. And what do they do it with? Um, alcohol. Every day after work, we would go to happy hour. There was alcohol in the office fridge. There was alcohol everywhere. Like even one weekend, they took us out in a limousine. Nothing but alcohol. I don't even know. Like when I think about the the amount of alcohol I drank that summer, and I was still able to function, like that would not have been the case. Maybe two or three years later in my addiction. At that time, I was able to take breaks from alcohol. And for me, during Ramadan, I always abstained from drinking and having sex. Um, things that you're not supposed to do as a Muslim anyways, but you know, I'm human. And for me, it was just when Ramadan came around, I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to have sex. I wasn't going to curse, you know, do things that I'm not supposed to be doing anyways. And it was the second day of Ramadan, I believe. And I started itching violently. Think about like spiders just all over your body, right? But you can't see them. We had to call the ambulance. I went to the doctor. The doctor did not know why I was itching. I then had to leave their internship early and my doctors didn't know why I was itching. They thought that was an allergy that was allergic to something. It wasn't until I went back to school where I started drinking again, I realized that the itching subsided. I realized that I was having withdrawal. My body was having withdrawal from alcohol, which None of the doctors even asked me about drink, my drinking habits. None of the doctors that I saw that summer could tell me what was going on with my body. That is just incredible to look back. And it's scary, too. I mean, just to think back on, I'd imagine, right? Like, imagine if I would have known, if I would have stopped, and if I wouldn't have, you know, entered into addiction, what would life have been like then? Katie's drinking escalated when she started preparing for the bar exam. It's something that would be stressful for any law student, but Katie felt even more pressure than a lot of her other classmates. I went to a predominantly white law school, and um, I think like any given class year, maybe maybe like 110 students, maybe three to four were black. Looking back, it makes no sense, right? There was this like myth that black students don't past the bar on the first try. And that adds pressure. It adds more of a weight on your shoulders. For sure. I did not want to be one of those Black students who didn't pass. And I wasn't, right? And I know, and honestly, not to toot my own horn. Two, hey, toot away, toot away. The, the chance of me not passing on the first, on the first try was actually slim to none. <laughs> but anyways, when you have all these things in your head, you're scared. So that's when... My relationship with alcohol definitely took a turn. So in the morning, I would wake up, take caffeine pills, um, drinking a lot of coffee, basically so I can stay up and study. I would wake up, let's say at like eight, start studying at nine. And then I wouldn't stop studying until like, let's say 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And because I was so like hooked up on caffeine and coffee, I would just drink my myself away to go to sleep. Yeah, to come down. Yeah. Yes. And it worked all the time. <laughs> it, it literally was like clockwork for two months. That's what I did. Caffeine in the morning, cheap. You know, I didn't have any money. Broke cheap liquor from like the dollar store, the moonshine. That would just knock you out. Knock me out. <laughs> like clockwork. 
So at that time, I didn't really have any concerns about my drinking. I thought that once I went back to New York to work, I would be fine. Katie was starting her first job in the New York legal profession, but she felt lost. She suddenly felt disconnected from the go-getter she'd always been. It was miserable. I was miserable, and I just felt like... It was such a 180, and I'll say this. I'm coming from 26 years of life of constantly being told I'm, I'm very smart, very intelligent, constantly having a lot of, of commitments, right? Being in charge of something, being committed to something, being responsible for something. My life was always busy. Like, I it was always busy. I went from that to working at a nine to five office <laughs> as a first year attorney, didn't even have my bar results yet. So I wasn't really doing much besides writing motions for other attorneys. I felt so worthless. I felt like I didn't have any meaning. I didn't really even have a concept of mental health. So what I resulted to was drinking. That's what I knew relieved me. But Katie's drinking couldn't get rid of that loss of a sense of purpose in her life. Instead, she found herself falling into an unfulfilling cycle. It was the same pattern, same pattern. Moving into a new apartment, starting a new job, then feeling like something was missing, then drinking, calling out her work, being spoken to, and then, okay, I'm resigning. I have to take care of myself, but not taking care of myself, going back to drinking. So I decided to get help. I went to go see a therapist. And it's so funny. I didn't go get help for my drinking because, again, at that time, I didn't have any concept of addiction, drinking problems. I just knew I was sad. I knew I was depressed. I knew that I wasn't feeling good, but I didn't know why. And I remember the first thing she told me was, she said, I think you should stop drinking. And I was like, what does my drinking have anything to do with anything? I was like, what are you talking about? My drinking is not the problem. It's something else. And she was telling me, well, yeah, we can get to the something else, but the first thing that you need to do is stop drinking. And I literally like was so pissed off at her and I left her office and went back out and continued drinking. What did your drinking look like, Katie? Like what did a day or a night of drinking look like for you? I would start drinking at 5 p.m. and I would drink until I blacked out the next day. Let's say I would wake up, maybe drink then, maybe until like 3 p.m., I would try to force myself to drink more, which resulted in me being physically sick. Like I was throwing up. I couldn't move. Stomach cramps. Like me and my stomach have a very tumultuous relationship. And, w- and when it's done, it's just done, right? Even two days of drinking, not like continuous drinking, would bring me unbearable pain. And I, and then if I'm in pain, I can't go to work. I can't go <laughs> on the subway and go to another another borough. At the same time, having like alcohol-induced anxiety and alcohol-induced depression, even though I was already feeling depressed. So the days that I was really taking out of, off of work, it wasn't to drink, it was to heal and to get better. That to me is one of the classic signs of addiction. When you are experiencing consequences, and it doesn't have to be physical, it doesn't have to only be like losing a job or being houseless. When you are facing consequences and and despite those consequences you are still choosing to drink you cannot stop i think that like you know you're kind of getting into the territory of problem drinking um addiction and you know it's a sign to like you know reevaluate your relationship with alcohol 
After a quick break, Katie tries to reevaluate her relationship with alcohol, but finds that her own perceptions of what addiction is could hold her back. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, All you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. Katie admitted to herself that she had a problem with alcohol. She needed to focus her energy on not drinking, so she tried rehab. To be honest, I don't think I've ever admitted this before. I honestly wanted to rehab because like, I couldn't go back home to my parents and I needed somewhere to stay. <laughs> I didn't want to go back to my parents because they wouldn't even have understood what I was going through. I had admitted at this time that I did have a problem. And I said, you know what, maybe I should just go get help. So I went to the rehab. After rehab, I was the only black person there. I was also the only person who was there for the first time. I didn't feel, in comparison to the other people I was with, that I was in addiction. I was like listening to what the other attendees were telling me, like, Katie, you don't have a problem. You're not like, you're not bad. You just have to drink less. I was basically looking at my stay in rehab as like a little vacation, which I definitely needed. Um, So that was my experience. So as soon as I left, let's say 30 days later, what did I do? You drank. Went back to the store. <laughs> I want to stay on this, Katie, because I think it's actually really important what you're talking about. First of all, I had a, it's amazing how many similar experiences I had with you. I, I didn't, I was not ready to stop. I went to a very fancy rehab center, but I didn't take it seriously. Like I was, I was calling up my bookie over the phone and making bets. And, you know, I was hooking up with one of, uh, one of my uh, bunk mates. And, uh, and then of course, the very day I graduated, so to speak, I, I drank, uh, I was not ready. Uh, because I still had this ego. I still had this stigma or attachment to addiction. Like you see the homeless person, you know, uh, muttering back and forth. That guy clearly has a problem, right? We have this image of what an alcoholic or an addict should look like. But what we fail to see is that you don't have to be that extreme to be an alcoholic or an addict. And I think that gets to your point of, of like, like when I first went to rehab, I'm sitting next to people who like have tattoos and they've been in and out of prison. I'm like, I'm not as bad as this guy, right? Like, I, I got this. And, and I think that, that that goes to the overall stigma that we talk about, that, that we don't have to look a certain way or act a certain way to reach rock bottom. You said it perfectly. And honestly, none of us are that far removed from being houseless. None of us are that far removed Imagine if I did continue drinking. I already knew that I could like lose a job. I was resigning. I could have easily been fired if I continued. So I know that I'm fireable. And if I'm losing my job or if I'm resigning, I can't pay my bills, right? Mm, that is exactly right. And while we're in the process of doing it, we're still 
considered to be quote unquote functioning alcoholics. I just feel like we're all, we're never, if, if you're in addiction, you're never really too far removed from being that person or looking like that thing that you associate addiction with. After rehab, Katie went back into that old pattern again. New apartment, new job, more drinking. And her relationships were becoming strained. She reached a point where she knew something had to change. So I just said I have to, I had to make changes. And I, at that time, that point, I went to Buffalo. I knew I couldn't get sober in New York. That was a fact. Did you start going to do outpatient stuff then? Oh, for sure. I was able to attend 12-step programs, even though I, I knew at that time I wasn't going to do actual 12-step, but I knew I, it felt good to be around other people getting sober just for the fellowship. I always tell people, you have to do what you have to do, you know? I went to the government building, got help with, like, rent because I wasn't working. I, ha- I needed to get sober, and I needed all the help I could, I could get. And I wasn't, I wasn't embarrassed or ashamed to do that. That's why the help's there, yeah. I've been working since I was 14 years old, and this time I need help, right? I need, I need all the help that I can get, um, and that's basically where and how I got sober. Plus, that meeting that I went there was more diverse, right? And I remember, for example, I remember George Floyd, right? He was murdered. And I remember going to a meeting that night, and no one was like really affected or really was talking about it this meeting that i went to was a predominantly mostly a white it was predominantly a white meeting right and no one seemed affected no one was talking about it and then in the morning when i went to another 12-step meeting which was predominantly black i brought that up like don't you guys feel any type of way of like why is no one talking about the murder of george floyd and you know these were older folks older black folks that i really truly you know, love and, and admire, they were telling me that, Katie, you just got to focus on your recovery and, you know, you can't worry about, you know, what happened to him. It's a generational thing. Yes, I know God exists. Yes, I know God. But that's not enough. It's not enough that I just put what I just saw on TV and what's going on on the back burner or pretend like it's not happening just because I'm in recovery. I can't do that. I want to learn how to live in the midst of all this chaos, right, without trying to escape. To me, ignoring that something is actually happening it's another form of escaping. And and some of those older members that you were talking about, you know, the, the old school types, right? Like, I love them to death and they have so much wisdom. But where's the where's the balance, right? We got to find the balance. Yes. And I'm not in a position to judge anyone else, but I know for myself, I don't want to pretend that things are, are not existing or not happening. I want to learn how to cope in a world where things are happening. I want to acknowledge, accept you know, um, so that that to me is, is one of like the main reasons why I said I don't think this 12 step thing is a good fit for me personally. 12 step meetings have helped millions of people recover from drugs and alcohol, including me, but they weren't the right fit for Katie. But instead of giving up, she did something else. Back in 2018, Katie had started a blog. And on it, she wrote honest posts about her struggles with alcohol and what it was like trying to get sober. It wasn't until a couple of years later that Katie realized her experiences were really resonating with other Black women. I started to get DMs and emails from other Black girls and women who were basically saying that, you know, they're drinking a lot, but they don't understand why. It's like they can relate to my blog. And what I picked up from like what folks were telling me is that 
they didn't know who they were when they were not taking care of folks, working, especially as Black girls, Black women, generally we're the head of the household, we're responsible for the rest of the folks in our community. We, we go to school, we work, we create. But because that was put on hold for them, they have lost somewhat of their identity. And that related a lot towards um, what I was experiencing when I graduated law school. It inspired Katie to create an inclusive online recovery community called the Sober Black Girls Club. We welcome all pathways. I'm talking about my experience as Katie Aalua Toyin, the Cancer, the Libra, uh, the Leo Rising, the New Yorker, the Attorney. I can only talk about my experiences and um, my feelings, but in the club, we welcome all pathways because, like, I just feel like there's so many options. There's so many ways that people can recover. We know that not one way is going to work for everybody. So why not just make it accessible to everyone and just give them the option to, like, try different things? Katie started hosting virtual meetings for the Sober Black Girls Club in 2020. And she didn't want people to feel how she felt in recovery meetings before. She wanted people to talk honestly about experiences as Black women in recovery. One person asked me, how does this relate differently from white folks? Like, white people go through this. And I love that they asked me that because I'm like, yes. I, no one asked me that before, but it makes sense. Let's get into it. This is how it's different. It's different because Black folks, a lot of, especially with our parents, the old folks, right? Growing up, it was always like, don't do this or white people are going to think you're crazy. Don't do this or white people are going to think you're stupid. Don't do this or white people are going to do this. Who was I looking for approval? My parents? Who... Who were they looking for approval? White people? It wasn't until I started to get into, wait, wait, how did I even get here? When it comes to, to Black girls and women, like, who are we trying to press? Who are we looking up to? Who are we looking up to? And what are the, the determining factors? And generally, it's really just what, what white folks have deemed appropriate, you know? Is your nails too long? Is your hair, is your, are you ghetto? How are you speaking, code switching? And that even though it's very common in a Black experience, I don't think that sometimes even as Black people, we acknowledge the the trauma or, or the difficulty that it really brings on when we're trying to really evaluate who we are and what we stand for. Thank you for all of that, because I think a lot of people just don't know, right? They just don't know. And because and not only do you have your own set of layers as a person dealing with recovery, then there's the other layer, that, that a lot of people don't know about. Exactly. Katie was helping other people recover and making discoveries that were helping her understand herself. One of those discoveries was the writing of Bell Hooks, a revolutionary author who wrote about race, class, gender, and self-recovery. Back then, you know, we were just hosting meetings, talking about our experiences and sobriety. You know, the books that we read, we would have like literature meetings and the books that we would read were from Bell Hooks. Yeah, Hooks, a legendary author. Yeah. Yes. It, it, she just, the way she captures just just the, our experiences just was just eye-opening, right? It's not enough to be like, okay, society is racist and this and that. Okay, yes, we know. Okay, great. But how is this, how is this transcribing into our everyday lives? How is this like 
you know, creeping into how we view ourselves and how we view each other, how our parents cheat, cheat us and how, how, you know, compared to how they cheat other people outside. It's just the way she talks about Black women, Black girls is just amazing. So the book that we started reading was Sisters of the Year, Black Women and Self-Recovery. And a lot of us, honestly, every week, I think we only had like one or two meetings that time. We just would cry because it was just... It was just life changing. Like that book just changed everything for us and strengthened us what's really important. Yes, accolades are important, right? Everyone wants to feel, look good. Everyone wants to accomplish things, right? But you, that is like at the, that is at the bottom. What is that top? It's like your own self-love, your own, your, your independence, right? Your self-autonomy, actualization. So we basically use our meetings to, to talk about our relationship with nature, our relationship with animals, our relationship with rest, with forgiveness. That book is like our blue book. Your voice gets so hopeful and optimistic when you talk about the club. And it, it's just, it's, I could just hear it. And I, I love it. And I love what you're doing. What does your family think about? your recovery and your work with Sober Black Girls Club? Oh, please. They don't acknowledge it, but one of the things that I've been healing in my self-recovery is just allowing people to be who they are. Especially in the Black community, a lot of stigma, a lot of, like, guilt. If I have a problem and you're my parent, then you're going to create my problem on you. Talking about our experiences and not being able to talk about them just as it is, but people thinking that it's going to create or equal blame or, or guilt or shame on the other person. It's like, can I just talk about my experience and you not make it about you? I think that's a huge part of it. But to be honest, like when I got sober to move to Buffalo, you know, my mom helped me. So I don't want to say that they haven't helped me. They, they've helped me financially get to where I need to go. But like, do they ask me about my sobriety? No. And, and I don't want to throw them under the bus either, right? Because as you mentioned, there's there's cultural issues at hand, not just in your family, but many, many other families. I, I do, though, bringing it back to recovery, how do you not allow yourself to become resentful? How does your recovery work in helping you move past that? Focusing on the positive more so, Club really honestly brings me joy. So I am really excited about the future of SBGC and incorporating um, recovery programs that are already established because SPGC is not a recovery program. It's just a recovery group. It's a recovering support group, social group, whatever you want to define it. Um, but we're going to be adding programs. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm just so proud of SPGC. I always tell people I'm I'm a human being. I'm open to change. Like if I imagine being stuck on one thing, like it's just it, being stuck on one idea or one belief, in my opinion, it just keeps us in this in this, I don't know, it's just the opposite of surrendering, right? And my recovery is all about surrendering to what is. You know, I'll be honest, like my addiction, as sad as it was, it opened a door of recovery for me that I don't think I would have. And I don't mean just recovery from alcohol. I mean, self-recovery. Katie continues to grow and expand the Sober Black Girls Club, which is now officially a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can learn more at SoberBlackGirlsClub.com. Back from Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Emily Williams. This episode was mixed by Kibway Cooper. Find a list of all the folks who worked hard to make this episode in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. 
This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.